Welcome to another episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing sacred and powerful stories of women who have too often gone unheard, but are most often the ones we need to be listening to. I'm your host, Andrea Miller, and I'm joining you from Kansas City, Missouri, on the native lands of the Kaw and Kickapoo Nations. If you want to know whose indigenous lands you are on, please go to native-land.ca. If you've never done this, I encourage you to do so. For today's episode, I'm joined by Reverend Dr. Angela Yarber. Angela is an award-winning author, artist, and founder of To Home Center Publishing. With five of her eight books listed in Q Spirit's top LGBTQ plus religion books, Dr. Yarber started To Home Center Publishing, an imprint publishing feminist and queer authors with a commitment to elevate BIPOC writers. Angela holds a PhD in art and religion and is an affiliate professor for women and religious leadership at Drew University. Her work has been featured in Forbes, Miss Magazine, HuffPost, The Independent, NPR, Maya Angelou's Memorial Celebration, the television show Tiny House Nation, and more. Her newest book, Queering the American Dream, is the subject of our conversation today. Always hoping to live differently, Angela shares her story of how she and her wife left it all. They quit their jobs, as professors and a pastor, they sold their home, and they followed the American landscape for 18 months, from Vermont to Hawaii, in a camper, with a toddler in tow. Throughout her queer family's travels, 16 revolutionary women from history and mythology guided their way, providing virtues for subverting the American dream. Angela's story of questioning everything and challenging the status quo will embolden you too as you follow in her wandering footsteps and listen in to her story. Dr. Angela Yarber, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, I'm super excited to have you here. I read your book when it came out last year and then reread again, um, kind of skimmed through for this, for preparation for this conversation. And I'm just really thrilled to have you here, not only on National Coming Out Day, but also LGBTQ plus history month and all the things. And you are dear friends with Kendall, who started NSP, and we got to meet there. So uh, we have some connections and ties that brought us to this space today. I love that. And those connections are some of my favorite in the world. <laughs> yeah. So tell us, before we dive into your story and your book, your book is called Queering the American Dream. Uh, and this is your most recent book, A Memoir, One Queer Family Who Left It All, and The Revolutionary Woman Who Taught Them How. And we're going to dive into your book and your story. But before we do that, just tell us where you are in the world, who you live with, kind of what your day-to-day life looks like. Sure. So I uh, currently live in St. Petersburg, Florida, but not for long, uh, with my wife and our two uh, young kiddos who are adopted through foster care. And um, what I do in the world day to day (laughs) really depends on the day because I am an author, an artist, a publisher, and an academic. So I'm an affiliate professor of women and religious leadership at Drew University. And and then I also run to Home Center Publishing, which is a nonprofit publishing house that publishes feminist and queer authors with a commitment specifically to elevate BIPOC writers. And then I'm also an artist um, who paints and writes about revolutionary women from history and mythology and in archetypal ways. Um, So those uh, for Andrea, for you who can see me right now, that's who's behind me and I'm in my art studio right now. Um, So I've worn a lot of hats over the years. Um, We'll probably talk about it at some point, but for 14 years, I was an ordained uh, pastor queer clergy woman. And um, I have not been doing that for about a decade. So um, it's interesting to have experience both inside and outside the walls of the institution. Yes. And your artwork is beautiful. And we'll make sure to put some links to that and post some pictures of it because it really is just gorgeous. And like you said, you wear a lot of hats. I'll have listed your resume and given you a proper introduction in the intro of this, but you do wear a lot of hats. And one of those being you were a pastor. And I'm so curious how you decided to go down that road. So let's go back a little bit to origin story and 
early roots. You told me like, cause we were just pre-talking a little bit, pre-talking. I don't know if that's a word. Um, <laughs> we were just talking a little bit before we started recording. You, you really weren't raised in a family that ministry was kind of the path that maybe most people would have saw coming for you. So tell me just a little bit about that story and how you went down that road and your origin family. Absolutely. So I come from a pretty non-religious family, but I grew up in Atlanta, which is the Bible Belt, part of the Bible Belt. And so Christianity was certainly all around me, but not at all the way that I was raised. And in fact, I had intentions of going to Juilliard, um, living a life as a performing artist. Um, I am a retired professional dancer as well. And that was going to be my career path. And then as a 16-year-old, um, a very formative age, I was invited by friends at school to a conservative, non-denominational Christian church. Now, I didn't really know anything about churches or denominations or anything like that, but I did know that they had a free rock climbing wall in the youth program. And so I went for free rock climbing. And in that process, um, had this conservative religious experience where I also uh, fell into the Jesus is my boyfriend trap, I suppose I would say, um, and believed that so fully that I took everything that the church handed me and believed that was the true and only way to be a spiritual person, to be a Christian person. And I remember a youth minister sitting me down one day um, and telling me that the performing arts and specifically dance brings glory to myself and not to God. And so I had about a probably a six month period of time where I packed those parts of myself away. But that was also when I was deciding where I was going to go to college. So instead of heading to New York and studying at Juilliard, I went to a small liberal arts college, though that's probably an oxymoron in name, uh, that was run by the Baptists, but um, was pretty fortunate in the sense that the religion department was at least moderate. And so um, the professors there showed me a new and different way to be Christian. And so in that process, I became a youth minister at the chair of the department's church, which was the most progressive in this small southern Georgia town, and ended up becoming ordained and going to seminary. But along the way, just kept uh, not really moving farther and farther to the left so much as returning farther and farther to the left, because I had always existed as a person on the left. Um, I come from a strong single mom who's a feminist. Um, I was really into like animals rights and I marched with PETA as a weird little middle schooler. And so that time in the conservative version of Christianity was really um, out of the ordinary for me. So returning to the more progressive side of the faith um, was more of a return. And since then I've moved so far left that I say I've, I've transitioned from having a theology to a philosophy. Yeah. And I want to talk about that later in our conversation, because I'm really just intrigued by that. Somebody else who also raised very conservative, has been very conservative and now mm -hmm. going. And also, I mean, I was never liberal, so that was never an option. Right. So now just discussing or just discovering this whole other alternative ways of being spiritual. So I want to talk more about that when we get a little bit later right. in your speech. So at that same time, because you are a queer woman, and today is National Coming Out Day. So tell me, if you don't mind just sharing a little bit of that, because if you're in there thinking Jesus is my boyfriend, I'm guessing, and you're in a, this conservative church space, I'm guessing you're not coming out as I'm, I'm a queer person in that space. So no, how, no. How did that happen? Was that before seminary? Like, yeah, share what you want to of that story. Yeah, it's interesting that I think that that part, um, the sexuality piece, as you and I have discussed before around purity culture, um, that was the piece. This was the late 90s, right? When Joshua Harris's I Kiss Dating Goodbye was so popular. You know, it was a short period of time for me, but enough to instill in me that wearing a purity ring and saving myself for marriage with to a man, of course, that was the only option. And because it was the 90s, even though I had wondered in my head about women since probably age 10, there, you know, Ellen wasn't even out yet. So this was uh, there. I didn't really have um, any gay friends at the at that point. And then I go to this Christian college where, you know, if you were openly gay, which I could only maybe think of 
like two or three people that were open and out at that time at college. Um, you couldn't serve in any religious leadership roles or even non-religious, you know, like student government type of things. Um, so for me, that was never an option in my mind. I wasn't even out to myself. Um, in seminary, I ended up um, becoming engaged to a man. And he was a graduate of another seminary. Um, and he was uh, progressive in theory, <laughs> not so much in practice, and claimed to be a feminist. Um, but instead of getting married, I went to do research in the Middle East the summer we were supposed to get married. And um, then we ended up breaking off our engagement and I got accepted to a PhD program in Berkeley, California. And so like how cliche could it be that the girl from Georgia goes to Berkeley, California and finally comes out. But part of it was because I was surrounded by other queer people, people who were out and proud and unapologetic, not just uh, socially, but also in religious spheres. So I had, professors and colleagues and ordained clergy who were also queer. And so I realized that was an option for me. And that's actually where I met my wife. Um, and that was now about 17 years ago. Um, so I had been ordained already before I came out and had been ordained about three years before I okay. came out. Okay. And I wondered, would they like call together the committee and rescind my ordination. Um, and I didn't. So okay. <laughs> had you been like practicing or preaching as like a, a straight pastor and then you came out or, okay. Yes. Yeah. So I had been in ministerial roles for seven years, three in an ordained capacity, and then, um, was an associate pastor for arts and education, I believe was my title at a church that at the time was not open and affirming, but part of their hiring me was to help them go through that process. So as they came out, as the church came out as open and affirming, I was simultaneously coming out as queer myself. Gotcha. Yeah. And going back to what you said, I mean, it can't be reiterated that the time when we were growing up, it was so heteronormative. And that's like yeah. what, with the right saying, oh, now that you're all talking about it, you're making all these kids gay. No, it's just people are and children are finally feeling some freedom that they can be this. Because like you, I knew nobody. And, I mean, it was out queer in high school or okay. college. Like nobody. And so it's not the, the kids just have freedom now. And I think that's just an important point. And that's part of your story of quote, queering the American dream, like how you're raising your children. I'm trying to, with my second, not to fit in these binaries and boxes and giving them the freedom to voice and experiment or whatever. So I think that's an important part of your story that like you've changed this narrative now for your children. Absolutely. Um, and I, I will say that I was very fortunate that um, partially because I do not come from a religious family, my parents and my brothers immediately accepted me. Um, I, you know, there was a little bit of like a learning curve with some things, but I was not worried about them disowning me or harming me or shunning me like so many people who are queer and have religious families experience. Right. Because we know like the population of homeless youth and I mean, it's hugely disproportionately LGBTQ youth. I mean that, and you saw it in ministry also with um, people in your congregation. So when you came out in ministry, because I know one of your, your book is about microaggressions in ministry and being, a, and ultimately kind of why you left ministry. Is that right? Because of right. just yeah. being a queer pastor in ministry, even though you weren't kicked out, you still, it was a different shift. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's interesting. Something that I talk about, I mentioned this in my book, Queering the American Dream, and then the book that Cody Sanders and I co-authored, uh, Microaggressions in Ministry, really touches on it more that, um, you know, the church, my last church that I served was an open and affirming church and had been since the 90s. Um, you know, they had been protested by Westboro Baptist Church and had had gay marriages and awards from PFLAG and awards for their work on, quote, racial reconciliation, even though they were a 90% white church. But my experience um, and my research has shown me that a lot of progressive white churches are very good at patting ourselves on the back for how progressive we are and saying, look, we have a rainbow flag. 
um, look. In our case, we had two queer pastors, two queer women, but the two of us really um, embodied both our sexuality and our gender identity quite differently, even though we both identified as queer women. And I think that that really threw some people for a loop. People who claimed to be allies did really microaggressively heterosexist and sexist things. And for me, after bringing this up repeatedly with the leadership and in my tradition, it would be called like a personnel committee in the deacons for about six months and nothing changed. I felt like I wasn't being taken seriously and often gaslit by the majority. Not all though. There were still some amazing people there, but I just decided you know, I'm about to adopt a kiddo. This is impacting not just my mental health and spiritual health, but even my physical health. And it's just not, not an institution I'm willing to fight for anymore. Um, and so I left. Yeah. And that is a significant part of your story, kind of a turning point in so much of what your book is about. So you and your wife, I mean, by like, whatever, American standards ha- had a lot going for you. You're both doctors, right. professors, went to Berkeley. You have it all. The house, the kid you're adopting, but you decide, like you just shared a little bit, you decide to leave on this and go on quite the journey of queering the American dream. So tell us just a little bit, I mean, you share all this in your book and we're just going to touch on some highlights of your book and your story. If people need to, to get your book to really get the full, the fullness of, of your journey and experience and, just kind of tell us a little bit about that phase of not phase that's that state where you're at and you decide to leave it all and right. what you, and what you decide to do leaving it all and <laughs> what you're going to do. Cause I'm still like, I can't believe she did that. <laughs> I, sometimes I'm surprised that we did this too, but um, my wife and I always talked about quote living differently, but we had these mm-hmm. conversations when we're like kind of hippie broke, um, PhD students living in Berkeley, like, oh, we're going to live differently and travel, da, da, da. But then we got kind of tied down by a mortgage, a child, nine to five jobs or kind of nine to five. She was a professor and I was a pastor who was also teaching part time. And, you know, we bought a house and we kind of did the, the quote unquote American dream, but it was not expansive enough for our callings. And so we decided that we would spend um, almost a year planning and saving um, where we sold our house, quit our jobs. And, um, at this point I had already quit my job at the church. So I was teaching, um, when we decided this, but, um, we bought a pop-up camper who we named Freya after Freya Stark, who tells us it's the beckoning that counts, not the clicking latch behind you. So we clicked to the latch on a lot of adulthood <laughs> and American dream elements of a home, a, a traditional job, health insurance, all of those things. And this came with a lot of privilege that we had the money and the education to be able to do this. But we traveled full time for almost two years um, doing um campground hosting and artist and author and residencies and all kinds of kind of wild ways of being in the world and living such that we only needed about a thousand dollars a month to um, live off of. And so, you know, teaching online and me publishing articles here and there funded that. And after two years of doing that, we ended up on Hawaii Island where we built an off-grid tiny house with the television show, Tiny House Nation. And we ended up- I did not know that about you until reading your book. I'm like, that's fantastic. And I even Googled you and there's an article in Forbes magazine. Like, that's incredible. No, I love it. Well, that's too kind. (laughs) Um, And we thought that's where we would stay. Um, We lived there five years and, and I adore Big Island. And there's a whole host of- of reasons for leaving. Um, that's a conversation for another time. But part of what it came down to is that along the way, we adopted another kiddo through foster care who has a lot of um, health issues and uh, the resources and the infrastructure in place on the islands just couldn't meet her needs. So we left the islands um, for the continent. How long ago did you leave there? The um, um, Two years. Two years. And you've been in St. Pete since then. Is that right? Okay. Okay. So, so going back in your story, this two years of traveling the U S and yes, you were privileged as we are white, able-bodied. And also you lived like 
not like a privileged person. You did not have, like you call it dry camping. You did not have toilets, running water, electricity. So I need people to hear you. This was not glamping that you all did. Correct. And you had a toddler, Angela. <laughs> right. It, um, well, it's, it's interesting because I think this is an example of where, um, you know, kind of intersectionality and where privilege and oppression can coincide, right? So we have this huge privilege of a tremendous amount of higher ed um, that we had owned a home. And so that meant we sold the home and then kept the profit. So we had that money as like a, a backup if something were to go wrong. And a lot of people don't have that. And simultaneously, I find that oftentimes the people who are quick to critique or roll their eyes at these kind of stories are actually like kind of upper middle class where if you wanted to do that, you could, I mean, you could live on a thousand dollars a month, easy peasy. Um, but yes, we were like dry camping essentially means when you have no electric or water hookups. And so a lot of the time we did that on free land or in casino parking lots because they allow that, but it permitted us this amazing opportunity to see the entire country. And so I think at this point, our now 10 year old has been to, I think 47 states um, because we were just traveling everywhere. And it was this great juxtaposition for me of the American landscape is quite jaw dropping. I mean, it's, we have so many gorgeous pockets of the country and we got to experience that and really immerse ourselves in it because we were camping. And simultaneously, we left the day the Supreme Court ruled gay marriage legal. And so all of the lashback from that, and this is when Trump was announcing that he was a candidate and then becoming um, the president. And so it was this amazing contrast of this beauty that then got hampered is too easy of a word, but, um, you know, like being in Confederate flag territory and, um, meeting people like an example I'll give is we broke down, our car broke down in Laramie, Wyoming, and we had to camp basically in a junkyard that was behind the auto shop. And Laramie, Wyoming is where Matthew Shepard was, was strung up and left to die, um, as a gay man. And so here we were, these two queer women, and this was also during the Pulse Massacre. It was during the Brock, Brock Turner rape case out of Stanford. And so we're these women, one of whom who has experienced sexual assault, were traveling with nothing but like mesh camper lining <laughs> protecting us from, it's not bears that I was afraid of. It's mostly like straight white men. Um, but so the, the way that we have safety and privilege and then also our illusion of safety, it, it was a big contrast there. Um, and to be doing that with a toddler was, was very, um, harrowing at times, but also absolutely beautiful. And I don't regret one bit of it. That's what I was going to ask. I mean, looking back now, you don't regret there were moments in it though. I'm guessing you did or no. Um, I mean, the there are a couple moments. of things. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, no. Some of the tougher moments in it. Do you, did you regret at that time while you were in it? Um, no, I actually don't think that I did. I mean, there are some moments now, like hindsight, where I know I tell a funny story about our camper getting stuck on a giant boulder. And I know now looking back, like Elizabeth and I need to stick with our skill set, which is her driving and me directing. And when we try to do the opposite, we get the camper stuck on a boulder. So um, there are things like that. But what's interesting is that my wife and I just talked about that story last night, because what I feel really grateful for is the relationship that the two of us have and how we communicate with one another. Because I think so many people, if they got into that stressful situation where literally you have, there's it would be impossible to get the camper off of the rock. Plus you have a toddler and mosquitoes are swarming and you're in the middle of nowhere with no cell service um, that I think most people would dig in and get into a fight. Um, we instead ended up cracking up. I went and I felt very sheepish that I have to go ask for a man for help, but the only other people camping were men. And I just explained the situation. We got out all the toolboxes and we ended up having to remove the axle from <laughs> from the camper to physically pull it off the boulder. But, you know, so there are some instances like that where in hindsight, I would do things differently, but I don't regret them happening. And another thing that was like glaringly apparent 
on that trip was this whole notion of like straight privilege, which had, wasn't honestly something I thought deeply about because I have really haven't had to, but that experience just showed you how much there is straight privilege in this world. So can you speak into that a little bit and maybe share, share an experience that you really just saw it play out? Sure. Well, I've joked before. I, I think most authors do this. I'm not trying to think more highly than I ought of myself. But, you know, if you imagine that there's going to be a movie made of your book, I have this scene in my mind where it's like, a, um, you know, there's music playing and it's a montage of backing the, the camper up, unhitching, and then me walking into the check-in place and them saying, have your husband back the camper up. Because every single place I walked into, you know, that was the routine. I go and go in and talk to the people for checking in. Elizabeth is the one who stays in the car with Raya. That's our child. And then backs the camper up. And I said, you know, it's, it's just small. And if it happens once or twice, no big deal. People make mistakes, but it literally happened. I mean, we camped in over 35 different places and Every single place we went, that's what someone said to me. And depending on the day and the moment, sometimes I don't correct them. It doesn't matter. Sometimes I say, oh, my wife will back up. Sometimes I have to assess the situation and notice, hey, they have Confederate flags hanging up. And maybe I'm not even going to mention that we're queer. Um, and that's something that queer people have to go through every single day. So we talk about that today on National Coming Out Day, that most queer folks we don't just come out once. We literally come out every single time we meet a person because of so-called presumed heteronormativity. Um, and I also um, am fairly femme. I don't read as queer when people see me. Um, and so they just assume that if I'm camping with someone, the person I'm camping with is my husband. And I do have to tell what I think is a hilarious, ridiculous story of one place we were in Southern Virginia that was gorgeous um, during the fall, just beautiful fall colors everywhere. And um, some campers, anytime people came to the campground, we would go greet them and give them a little bit of information about the campground. So um, I walked up to a couple, it was a man kind of bedecked in camo. And then um, his wife was wearing light pink camo with a bedazzled blessed across the chest of it. And um, so I walked up and, you know, was welcoming them to the campground, telling them the campground rules and all of that. And then my wife, Elizabeth, and our toddler, he uh, was not even two at the time, Raya, had just come in from a, from a hike. So they kind of walk up to greet me and Raya comes running up, mama, and jumps up, gives me a hug. And the lady was like, oh, how cute, how do you see us? And I say, oh, this is, you know, this is my son or my child, Raya. And um, so she's kind of playing with him and, oh, you love your mama, da, da, da. And then she looks at my wife and she's like, well, who is this? And um, I'm about to say, oh, this is Elizabeth, my wife. But I get to, this is Elizabeth. And I'm about to say my wife. And she interrupts and says, Oh, that is so sweet of you to come and help her take care of the baby while your husbands are deployed in the military. And I, I'm completely flabbergasted because I'm like, where in the hell did this story come from? Like how, what kind of mental gymnastics are you doing to not see that? I mean, oftentimes people get that we're, they'll say we're sisters, you know, She's made up a whole big old story that you're married and your husband. Story. Yes. And then what's wild to me is just a couple weeks later, another couple is there and they say almost the exact same thing. So I don't know if there's some like secret cabal of military wives that help out with children and go camping in Southern Virginia, but that is the story they made up about us. Lots of stories made up, I'm sure, in people's <laughs> minds. When, so you did this in what, in 2016? Is that right? That would have been 2016. Okay. I mean, I'm hoping that narrative would change a little bit by now, but I don't even know. It probably depends on what, what state, state you're in, I'm guessing. That was the same location where we ended up joining a gym because they were, we were there for two months and it was raining a lot and the gym had childcare. And so we joined on the family membership pass, right? And we come in every single day as a family and we use their showers as a family because 
you know, it, it's nice to take a shower when you're camping. And the lady at the front desk for a while keeps asking my wife, like, well, who is that? Is that, you know, is that your sister? Is that your cousin? And finally, one day she's like, oh, she's the grandma. And she points to me. And at this point, I was, I think, 34 years old. And there's nothing wrong with being a 34-year-old grandma. And my wife and I are one month apart in age. There's no way that I look like I'm old enough to be her mom. And we just kind of looked at each other like, what do we even say? Like, how do you not even think? Oh, they're a family. (laughs) I mean, it just again shows you how heteronormative this world still is. And so you're having these everyday occurrences. I mean, you're having some beautiful moments. You're really honest in your book about the scenery you're seeing and the connection with the earth. You're having some of these day-to-day frustrating encounters, but you're also dealing with some really big hard life stuff. The mm-hmm. Your brother, you share about the death of your brother, the grief. You share about pain of eating disorder. Like you share about some really hard stuff um, in your story, in your journey. And backed up to that, you're, and this is why I love your book, you're inter- interweaving these stories of these amazing women saints. You call them subversive sister saints. Yes. Um, and you're sharing these stories of these incredible women, goddesses, and where you're ga- gathering your strength from. So I'm just curious, though, so how, and I want to talk about a few of them, because especially with today, like what is going on in this world, like we need to draw strength from Absolutely. these women that came before. I'd love to know in your journey, when did you discover these women? For me, you discovered goddess in the last couple of years and the, the goddess history. It, it's been really life-giving to me. So I'm just curious, coming out of the church, being a pastor, did you know these women then? Or how did you start encountering them and forming this relationship and connection with them? That is a great question. And I'm so glad you brought it up because it is such a vital part of my life and of the book and the work that I do. Um, because the mission is really all about telling the stories of these revolutionary women, of which I count us as well, right? But what's interesting is that it was probably around 2008 when I started what I then called the Holy Women Icons Project, which was um, when I was researching and painting a variety of women from within the Christian tradition to start with. So they were women from scripture, historical women like Anna Julia Cooper, who is an African Methodist Episcopal preacher, and Dorothy Day, who founded the Catholic Worker Movement, you know, women like that who were kind of everyday saints, but whose stories don't get told enough. And after doing that for a few months, I had an art exhibition of probably about 12 different figures. Um, my list kept expanding, 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 and expanded outside of the Christian tradition first. So then I started painting Hindu goddess Sarasvati and Buddhist goddess Guanyin and researching their stories, lives, legends, and legacies is kind of how I usually put it. And then women even outside of um, the major wisdom traditions. So women like Frida Kahlo and Audre Lorde and Gloria Ansabua that people don't often think of as spiritual leaders, but when you research and read their work, they actually were quite spiritual. And so to look at them as this, you know, in the Christian tradition, we refer to it as the great cloud of witnesses. Um, and then other traditions have similar things upon which they draw. Um, But I thought of it as a subversive way to approach this notion of the great cloud of witnesses, to think of these historical women, these mythological women, and even in some ways archetypal women um, throughout history and mythology who have enlivened and inspired and empowered us. And for me personally, and for the community to whom I now, I'll use the word minister, even though that's not typically the word that I would use, but my greater cloud of witnesses of subversive sister saints around the world. It's teaching about these stories, both as an act of gratitude for the work that they've done as a way of keeping their names and their stories alive. So a little bit of an education piece and a legacy piece and also acknowledging upon whom we stand, like on whose shoulders we are resting upon. 
right? Because they've gone before us. And I believe, especially when you think of these different goddess figures and you think of the role of ancestors in your life, that it's not just that they've gone before us, but that they dwell beside us and within us and are behind us still supporting and upholding us. And I think, um, you know, of the amazing work that you're doing here with Her Story Speaks and um, and the workshops that you lead and things like that, and, and so many other women doing these things too, of lifting up the story of many would call it the divine feminine or goddess history or reimagining history with her story um, and saying that these are powerful stories that we have legacies too, that just because they weren't written in the annals of history, it's because those annals were written and recorded by straight white men. And so we can lift up our stories as well. So it was kind of an inorganic evolution that you found starting with the holy women while you considered yourself a Christian and then you evolved into the other because you no longer consider yourself a Christian, but you're spiritual and you get your strength and inspiration from from these women that came before. Is that correct? Yes. And I I would say that um, there are still some tenets of progressive iterations of Christianity that resonate with me. Um, I just don't see them as necessary or requisite or like, I don't believe in a salvation. So (laughs) there's no um, soteriology there, if you will, but that these, and I don't want to say that it's a new way of looking at it because it's not, as you know, this is actually ancient ancient going way back to, prehistory way of looking at right, yes. right. Mm-hmm. and I, I think of it that I use this term a lot this phrase a lot when I'm talking about queer spirituality but I think it applies here too and that our role is to recover from religious trauma which you and I know a lot about <laughs> so recover from that and we do that by restoring the lost voices of women and queer folks within the traditions but also reimagining a new iteration of spirituality. So I think both of these points are important. And there are some people who are still firmly planted in the Christian tradition who are doing a lot of the restoration work, right? But are not doing the reimagination work. And so for me, both are important to say, you know, for many people, your wisdom tradition is so important to you that let's lift up those hidden and uh, strategically erased perspectives while simultaneously reimagining new ways and tapping into ancient ways of yeah. being spiritual in the world. No, I love that, that you correlate with the queering the faith, because I think that, and I meant to kind of clarify that term early on, you know, your title, Queering mm-hmm. the American Dream. Like I, I wrote down Bell Hook's quote that you start the book with, queer not as being about who you have sex with, that can be a dimension, but queer is being about the self that is at odds with everything around it and has to invent and create and find a place to speak and thrive and to live. Yeah. So the whole notion of queer is not this box that we so often want to put it in. It's so Absolutely. much bigger than that. Queering your faith, queering the American dream, our lives, it's mm-hmm. something that we can, can all lean into, really, would you say? Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, I think that there is something unique about identifying as queer with regard to gender identity or sexual orientation. And um, for me, the, the crux about using queer rather than or in addition to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, asexual, you know, all of those other terms is that it is it's political and it is also a verb rather than an adjective. It's something that you do, um, something that, like if you return to the dictionary definition, it's to intentionally transgress or subvert. And so when I think about queering the American dream, queering spirituality, queering parenting, queering relationships, that that's intentionally subverting and transgressing these norms that have been set in place that really are set in place to only benefit a select few people. And for those of us who have not benefited by that, we're not trying to say, well, let's reverse this hierarchy. We're trying to say, let's dismantle this system altogether and reimagine an equitable, just way of being in the world where everyone can flourish and thrive. And I'm hopping on a soapbox now, so I'll climb off. <laughs> mm, I, like to, I like to sit back and listen. I wish we had another hour. I would just like tell, tell you to preach right now. <laughs> no, I, I love it. And you're speaking like the words so many need to hear and what my heart needs to keep continuing to hear, especially when we're so surrounded 
by way too many wanting to maintain the status quo of how it is. We, we need these voices of yours on their soapbox. So let's talk about, um, you know, we mentioned it's LGBTQ History Month and many of the women, like you, you share so many women in your book, uh, these sister saints. Is there one in particular maybe that's really resonating with you now or that one you just feel like, I want to talk about her and give her her some attention right now? Absolutely. So I, um, anyone who's ever listened to a podcast with me is going to know who I'm going to bring up because she's my favorite. And it's hard because I kind of want to talk about Gloria Anzaldua too and Andre Lord, but instead I'm going to say Polly Murray would be the historical figure. And I want to preface, I'll tell you who she is, but I want to preface that I am using she, her pronouns for Polly Murray because those are the ones she used for herself. Um, some scholars have used they, them pronouns for Polly um, because if Polly were alive today, it's likely that Polly would have identified as either transgender um, or as gender non-binary, but she did not have access to such language in the 30s through the 60s. So Polly Murray was a civil rights attorney, and she applied to law school in North Carolina and got rejected because she was Black, and then applied to Harvard and got accepted with a scholarship because they thought Polly was a man's name. And then they found out Polly was a woman and revoked admittance and the scholarship. So she goes out to UC Berkeley, does a law degree, ends up getting a PhD as well, and writes what Thurgood Marshall describes as the Bible of the civil rights movement. So folks, if you've never heard of her, like to me, she is a, an equivalent of like Martin Luther King Jr., right? Writes the Bible of the civil rights movement. Um, and for her, she coins the phrase Jane Crow to acknowledge the sexism that accompanies racism and Jim Crow laws in the South. Then she goes on to co-found the National Organization of Women now because she wants to work on behalf of Black women. Then, as if she hasn't been awesome enough already, she ends up feeling a call to ministry and goes to seminary in her 60s, becomes the first African-American woman ordained as an Episcopal priest, presides at the Eucharist, which is um, the bread and the wine for those outside of the tradition, um, which is the first act that you do when you become an ordained Episcopal priest. And she presides at the Eucharist at the church where her grandmother, who was then enslaved, was baptized. And all along the way, she had committed intimate relationships with other women. Um, obviously, that was not just that they couldn't get married, but that was illegal. You could have um, electroshock therapy and be imprisoned um, for having that as your reality when she was alive. Um, and she also wrote about how she always felt like a man trapped in a woman's body. For a while, she took hormone treatments, and she always dressed in what was considered at the time men's clothing. So wore her hair short, wore slacks, which um, at the time, it's not just that that was frowned upon, but in many places and campuses, it wasn't legal for women to even wear slacks, uh, something that we often take for granted today. Um, so... Polly did all of these absolutely revolutionary things. She claimed hope is a song in a weary throat. Give me a song of hope in a world where a little brown girl can sing. And she also says um, one person plus one typewriter constitutes a movement. And as an author and someone who runs a publishing company, I often draw upon Polly Murray's words to think of the power of the pen, the power of publishing and and that she was saying these things like from the 30s through the 60s just blows my mind. So she was one of the myriad women who along the way um, really enlivened our travels and enlivened um, my efforts to try to live in accordance with my calling and my ethics and beliefs. Yeah. I'm so glad you shared about her. Actually, she's the only one I wrote in my notes because I'm like, if she doesn't talk about her, I want her to. So I wrote her name down because her story is extraordinary. Right. And, and how is it really that we is. get through like elementary school and haven't heard of her, let alone I went through undergrad seminary where I was focused on women a PhD where I was focused on it. And then I didn't even come across her until I was um, 
like an artist in residence at this women's preaching conference in North Carolina. And because she grew up in North Carolina and there's murals of her in Durham, um, one of the women there was like, oh, I know you paint revolutionary women. Let me take you on a quick mural tour. And I was just jaw dropped. How had I not heard about this woman until I was, I don't know, like 32 or something years old. I mean, I was last year that I read about her. Right. And so I appreciate that with all your higher education that, but that is just case in point, how these women's stories are buried and silenced and we try not to uplift them. So again, why your work is so important. And I know we both have a passion for uplifting women's voices. Is there somebody today, as we sit here, you and I talking, war is breaking out. Things can look so hopeless. And we are sitting in such a safe, relatively safe place of privilege, why things so many women and children are not. Is there a woman, a saint that you would call on or lean on today or that comes to mind for like the heavy grief or hopelessness? Mm -hmm. And I didn't give you this question in advance. So if you're like, "Ah, I would need more time to think about that, that's okay too. Well, I, yeah, I think I have two responses that are not oppositional, maybe two sides of the same coin. But um, one is Guan Yin, also known as um, Huan Yin, a G or a K, depending on if it's Japanese or Chinese, um, who's the Buddhist com- goddess of compassion and mercy. And one of the stories about her is that her fingers, like the Buddhas, are webbed so that when she holds you, um, either in delivering someone um, to like after death or those who are grieving, which people have shared with me when I was grieving that her fingers are wet so that nobody falls through the cracks between her fingers. Um, and for her, that includes all sentient beings. So that includes animals as well, um, who are also, um, casualties, so-called of war. So I think of Guan Yin and her compassion and the role of of grief and how she compassionately holds us with her 1000 arms and webbed fingers and places us in the center of the lotus flower. And I also think of Hele, who is the Hawaiian goddess of volcanoes and lightning, um, because it's mostly her rage and anger that brings about the lava and um, it's interesting because I lived on the volcano when I was living there um, on Kilauea. And um, it's interesting that while lava does devour everything in its path, it also creates new land. So Big Island gets bigger and bigger every year because of Pele. And I bring her up because we need grief and compassion and to be held. But also women are so often told that we can't be angry or I think in particular of women of color and more specifically black women, there's tropes and stereotypes of like the angry black woman or women are told, you know, you have to hold it together and control your emotions. And Pele gives us permission to rage and be angry and to realize that it's not only an outlet for um, rage and even grief and anger, but also that that, Anger and rage creates new things, kind of a la like Kali in the Hindu tradition that it, instro- it destroys in order to create. And I don't say these, I don't want to appropriate them as I am a white woman talking about goddesses typically of color and these traditions and outside of my own culture and tradition, but as an invitation for us and for anyone listening to learn more about these revolutionary women and goddesses um, because they're amazing entry points into other cultures and also invite us to tap into different pieces of ourselves that especially white Western colonial Christianity doesn't really give you permission to do. So, right. I'm so glad you said that. Thank you. Cause that has been a bit of a struggle of uh, just an internal Ooh. struggle as a white woman, like diving in and learning this, but it's like differentiating between that cultural appropriation and actually learning at the feet of is such, such a different thing. And I'm glad you brought up um, just that anger aspect and like almost kind of the quote dark goddess, because I think that's the mm-hmm. other thing of the sacred feminine is we have this other notion of very still binary thinking and not giving the space for the anger or the rage. And Mm -hmm. that is all a necessary part of the transformation too. I saw, and I know we have to wrap up here shortly, but I'm curious your thoughts on this as we're talking about the sacred feminine. Somebody commented today, I think on one of my posts was like, they feel like this is the 
time, like really the rise of the sacred mm. feminine. We're really seeing it come uh, maybe because of the mess of the world. How do you feel about that? Do you feel like that's true or she's always been there or what are your thoughts on that? It's interesting because even as, I don't know if you resonate with this, but as a, a sister um, sacred feminine person, you know, we often like slide into some of the slippery slope new agey metaphysical territory and my wife is always because she's super analytical is always like oh geez you're gonna fly down that slope so it can be tricky and i simultaneously feel to use a feeling word like yes there is some kind of shift coming and i almost feel like oh i wish i could remember the quote it's arun hati roy who's um an indian um from india feminist um who, when she, when the pandemic first started, like a month in, she wrote this beautiful article about how this was a portal for us. And we can enter the portal and create a new world, a la Brene Brown talks some about that, like, because what worked before is clearly not working. And what is disappointing is that I think many of us have gone through the portal and we've returned to business as usual. But a lot of people, and I think a lot of people who have had, who have historically marginalized identities, so women, queer people, people of color, and of course, that can all be one in one person too. Um, all of these folks are realizing what you said was the status quo, what you've said was acceptable, what the systems were, those don't work anymore. And so we're in the process, I think, through... Um, some pieces of goddess work, some of the divine feminine of reimagining a new world. Um, and how I really wish I could remember this Arun Hati Roy quote because she talks about a new world is coming. Um, you can hear her breathing. And mm -hmm. I just think of how I see in your work and in my own work and in the work of Christina Cleveland and in Nevertheless She Preached and in Trista Hendren over in Norway and Kelly Hickey up in Canada and you know, so many others are um, even in like Harmonio Rosales's artwork that this is stirring up in academia and art and activism and, you know, all of these places, but it seems like we're starting to weave connections among it all. And for me, like Audre Lorde said, true liberation can't happen without community. That's where what's powerful is that we're not just these ensiled identities and people doing things, but we're starting to connect. And I might be sounding too woo-woo. I don't know, but no, no, I, think I, I would <laughs> agree with you. Like the examples you're giving, like I also don't want to fall down that slippery slope of the second coming is coming. That whole course, uh -huh. like all the things here, like oh. So I don't want to do that, but I also you can't ignore the rise in spaces that she probably shouldn't be showing up. In my own life, it was so many like you know. What I mean? So yeah. I think that a lot of of weight there. So I appreciate your insight on that. And I know we need to wrap up. One of the final things you say in your book is I continue to evoke radical imagination as I queer the American dream, but I don't do so alone. And it's really is a call for action, a little bit what you just spoke mm. of, of the community and the rise and listening to these subversive and learning from these subversive sister saints. But one of the terms you bring up, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but I'd love for you to speak on it for just a minute, is the eschatological imagination Yes. Can you kind of leave? And then we'll talk about all the places you can be found, but I'd love to just kind of end on that because it all, it's all part of it. Absolutely. And you did a beautiful job pronouncing it. And it's interesting because I, I toyed with not even using the phrase because it just sounds like you're trying to show off kind of like, Oh, look at how smart I am talking about eschatological imagination, but that is what it is. But it's something that when I used to teach intro to worship and ritual, we talked about a lot and it is something evoked, um, particularly in the Abrahamic traditions and specifically within Christianity, where so often the example that I give so often when white people enslaved Africans and brought them to this continent and then forcibly tried to convert them to Christianity and told them you'll understand it better by and by because your rewards will be in heaven. And that Christianity, and this happens in a lot of other wisdom traditions too. So, um, but Christianity often says like, oh, if you're suffering now, you're just storing up jewels in your crown in heaven. 
And as though life here on earth is just this testing ground. And what eschatological imagination says, eschaton refers to like the end. So imagining is that is bringing heaven here on earth and saying it's not good enough to say to someone who's suffering and that you're actively oppressing (laughs) that you'll understand it better by and by, but that we create a better world here and now. And the only way you can do that is by imagining it. And so I think this is where a lot of times activists, of which I consider myself, sometimes fall short because we don't value imagination and the arts um, enough. We see them as peripheral, as distracting, or as decorative, rather than saying these are vital ways of creating the world that we want to inhabit. And so we see that in a lot of spirituals where the enslaved would put coded language into their spirituals. We see it with, I mean, these are very like small particular examples, but we see it with Peruvian women in the Andes who sew these tiny, um, they're called quadros, these tiny quilt pieces that depict like beautiful, vibrant, colorful, tropical landscapes with dolphins and whales and things that they've never seen in their lives, but they're imagined because they're living in like, this is in Lima, Peru in particular, which is like a very dusty tan brown area, um, but that they're imagining what the world can be that's thriving and vibrant. And so imagination, radical imagination, eschatological imagination is um, this trick that we have that humans have the capacity for doing, for saying what's here and now isn't good enough. And so I'm going to imagine something better. And then the work of justice and activism is creating that better. What are you imagining right now, Angela? And then we'll talk about all the, and maybe this ties into actually what you are doing, the work um, Mm -hmm. publishing and that maybe it ties in, maybe it doesn't, but share what you're imagining right now. And then lead us into all the, all the things that are actually happening. Well, I'm going to take, you're saying maybe it connects as an invitation to make it connect because I definitely it does. So uh, in my own work, I, this is really new for me, so I might not be able to articulate it as well as I would like. My work over the past decade has really been, yes, I'm telling the stories of other revolutionary women and I'm doing it through my art and through my writing, but I feel like I've come to a turning point in this calendar year, actually in 2023 of creating a platform for others to tell those stories too. So it's not just my books and my art, but where I founded this publishing company to home center publishing, where there are so many others who have these powerful revelatory eschatological or radical imagination stories to share that haven't had a platform. And my experience as an author, though I have very much appreciated the four different publishing companies I've worked with on my eight different books, um, my experience and research has shown me that there just aren't any or very many publishing companies that understand the nuances of what it means to be a queer and feminist writer, Um, especially smaller independent publishing agencies. Like, you know, there are those, the big five, I don't need to name them all, but you know, like if you get a six figure book deal and all of that, like they're going to get the word out, but you also lose a little bit of control. And so I created to home center publishing because I feel like these stories deserve to be told and heard and um, to spread them to whoever will read and hear. And that's been really interesting for me because as um I'm a Leo in horoscope. And so Leos like to be the center of attention, I'm told. And so this is not my story being the center anymore, but me lifting up. And that was kind of what I was doing with women from history and myth. But, you know, being able to be on the the back end of other people's work, I'm finding like really amazing in ways that I didn't even expect. So for me, that's one way that I'm imagining and trying to create a better world. And it's I don't know, just been really beautiful to me to work with a lot of the authors that I'm working with and seeing the amazing work that they're doing, Um, but also to provide 
like I'm not just seeing it as publishing, but like Polly Murray said, one person plus one typewriter constitutes a movement that, but that this is movement and community building so that our authors, I'm hoping are becoming this beautiful collaborative network that we're having these beautiful retreats where authors get to be in beautiful locations and writing and having all of their needs and sensory needs met. Um, while producing this just beautiful work that goes out into the world. So I see a lot of it as like radical self-care for collective liberation. It's really beautiful, Angela. And I know you're just talking with you about the publishing center that you've created. Like it's all just, it's very exciting. And you're offering just an array of courses, community groups. So tell us a little bit about that and where you can be found because you're offering something coming up in November. So share that with my listeners because I'm sure I've, within my realm of listeners, there are women that have stories that need to be told that want to write that have a passion like yours and mine. So how can they connect with you and get involved and share their voice and their story? Perfect. So I would say three primary ways. Of course, you can find us on, you know, all the socials um, at Tehom Center. That's T-E-H-O-M Center. Tehom is the Hebrew word for deep or depths. Um, and I bet we can put some of these links in the show notes and things yeah, like it'll that. It'll all too. be in the show notes, um, but we'll, just, we'll verbally say them, but they'll all be in the show notes. Yes. Perfect. So you can find us there and at tohomecenter.org. But I could think three ways coming up that are fun. Um, one of them is in addition to traditional publishing, which anyone can see on our website, you just submit to us. I just realized how icky that could feel for someone who was meshed in the Christian tradition. I don't mean submit in that way. I mean, you submit your materials to us, your proposal for your book. And we do that. But in addition to that, we do offer some paid programming. This isn't paying to be published, but paying for the coaching that could get you to a publishing contract. And one of those that's coming up is a flash cohort in November to coincide with what's known as NaNoWriMo, which is a national write a novel in a month. It doesn't have to be a novel. This could be any work, creative nonfiction, novel, poetry, anything. But basically we use their method of writing 1,667 words every day throughout the month of November. And by the end, you have a 50,000 word manuscript. It'll probably be a little sloppy, but it'll be a finished manuscript. So in our cohort, we will coach you through that. We'll coach you in planning, pinning, and then publishing your book in um, Zoom coaching calls for a group, in addition to a private Facebook group that'll give you like prompts throughout the week. Um, so that's coming up and you can find that on our website and register for that. And then we also have a really um, beautiful writing retreat for women and non-binary kindred coming up in April in Baja, Mexico. And uh, depending on when this comes out, we do have a writing contest. Um, the deadline is October 23rd. If you enter this writing scholarship contest, you could win up to 90% off the retreat tuition. So first place is 90%, second is 50%. And then third place, you'll still get something. You'll get a nice luxury massage while you're there. Um, so that'll be fun. Yesterday when I talked to you, Angela, I was like 90% sure I was winning today. I'm 99% sure. So tomorrow I'm pretty sure I'm going to sign up and be there. So I'm oh, like, I'm so excited. And I'm, I'm co-facilitating this with Dr. Kate Evans, who is um, retired, but she retired early, retired creative writing professor. And she's super brilliant, has published eight books. She's amazing. Um, and a little freebie that I have for your listeners is if you are interested in learning how to write and edit like a feminist, I've created um, basically like a checklist guide to help you in writing, editing like um, a feminist through the lens of intersectional feminism. And it is for free if you go to tohomecenter.org slash TCP. TCP for to home center publishing. And you can grab that free um, guide for you. It just, um, you know, sometimes no matter how much you've studied um, intersectional feminism and no matter how much, how many anti-racism trainings you've done and disability studies trainings, there's still going to be words and phrases that you just, you forget. And this helps you have a bit of a reminder so that your writing can really match um, the message of, of what you're trying to send out in the world. That's a phenomenal freebie. Thank you for that. I'm excited. Oh, yeah. to 
question because you do talk about, and I didn't touch on that enough, your book, you do such a fabulous job of talking about intersectional feminism and drawing on the voices of intersectional feminists. And so I probably did not talk about that enough, but that is a huge part of your your voice and what you want to put out there. So this free guide is really a phenomenal offering. So thank you for that. We'll make sure to links to everything. And then what about your artwork? If people, do you still sell it? Is that on your website? Absolutely. Yes. That is on the website to homecenter.org. So if you go there, you'll see kind of um, my entrepreneurial side as an artist, but also the publishing center side. So you'll get both. Um, We've got prints that are more affordable and then also um, originals that range in price anywhere from like 350 to 5,000. So a really big range there, but yes. And I also take commissions and um, art projects and things like that. So I always love to connect with people through art and word. I will put links, but everything can be found on, on the website. Just keep looking around there, all your offerings. Cause you offer even more of the writing offerings. And we even talked about here Absolutely. today. There's yes. some coaching and packaging and in January, you're starting a new program for writers. So you offer a lot and you, I just can't encourage people enough if they feel like they have a feminist queer authors, if they have a story to tell and dreamed of getting publishing to, to reach out to you or connect with you. I mean, I know we've been talking Angela and um, have some things in the works with my own book and story. So I'm just super, super excited about that. I want to encourage other, other women authors just to do the same. Absolutely. And I am so, so excited about moving forward and publishing with you. And I would encourage folks too, who are listening that if you are interested, when you reach out to me, um, just put in the subject line that you heard this on her story speaks or something in that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I try to answer everything quickly anyway, but I'd love to know where people heard about it. And then we have a, you know, a, a personal connection. That's right. You'll get a little more priority maybe, right? Okay. <laughs> yeah. No. Angela, oh my gosh, I just love talking to you. Thank you so much. And again, the book is your book is called Queering the American Dream, a memoir of one queer family who left it all and the revolutionary women who taught them how. And we will put links where to buy your book. I mean, we encourage buying from private bookstores, but you can buy it in all the major places too. But um, we'll put we'll put links to that. And your book came out last year and just you gave us a taste of some of the women that you mentioned. I mean, if you want to really meet more revolutionary women, uh, dive in. Dive into your book. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I have loved this conversation. Thank you for listening in on this conversation. Everything Angela mentioned, including the free feminist editing guide, the retreat details, and her book publishing workshops can be found in the Her Story Speaks show notes for this episode or simply at tohomecenter.org. I'll leave you today with the quote Angela mentioned from Arundhati Roy. Another world is not only possible, She is on her way. On a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. May it be so.